0: Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Krista Genning Saturdays. This program is being pre-recorded for Saturday, November 14th, 2020. Once again, it is Wednesday morning, November 11th, and we have Truthvids here with us to discuss the next several points, or maybe only the next one or two, of his 100 proofs that the Israelites were white this is part 14 of our series. Hello, Truth Fids. Praise Yahweh and thank you for being here.
1: Hello, Bill. Praise Yahweh. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so um originally we thought we'd just go to the minor prophets, but then we realized um Ezekiel, the the part where he lamentates about Tyre. We should uh, he deserves another proof. And if Daniel got two proofs, the prophet daniel then why doesn't ezekiel get two as well right right bill
0: well, well i mean there's probably more than two we're not halfway through the series and and i might think of a few more before it's over i'm sorry no no <laughs> the um that we spoke about ezekiel from from the viewpoint of the important prophecy in chapter 37 and and we may have even elaborated further on that and and i think we did where we spoke about the lost sheep going over every mountain in in chapter 34 and and that narrative continues through chapter 36 and and then we get to the one stick prophecy of ezekiel chapter 37 which is also a prophecy of a new covenant of another covenant even though he didn't use the word new like jeremiah did he implied it in his language where he said that where yahweh god said through ezekiel that he would make another covenant with the the house of israel and the house of judah who are now one stick and and that's a reference to the new covenant in christ it has to be because nothing else done in judea from that point forward included the house of israel it only included the remnant of judah after the babylonian captivity which by no means can qualify as all of Israel, as the Jews claim to this day. They falsely claim that to this day, that the people in Judea represent all of Israel. And that was never true. There was one woman in the New Testament who was of Israel who was not of Levi, Judah, or Benjamin. And that was Anna, the prophetess, and she was of the tribe of Asher and to understand how somebody in palestine in the 1st century ad could could claim to be of the tribe of asher one must understand how asher could have people of asher could have remained in the area for so long and maintained their identity and tyre The city, the ancient city of Tyre, is the answer to that question because the Tyrians had had, um, survived the Assyrian captivities by submitting themselves to Assyria. And doing that, they were actually turning their backs and being treacherous to their fellow Israelites. And we'll discuss that today, I pray, when we discuss the minor prophets. And the Tyrians... When the Babylonians came, they destroyed the mainland city of Tyre, which in the Assyrian inscriptions was called Ushu, actually, after an ancient name that's not mentioned in the scripture. Well, Tyre had two parts. One part was a fortified city on the mainland, and the other part was an island that was also fortified. It was an island surrounded by a wall that they had built up and gates for shipping to enter in and out, that they could have a safe port. And for that reason, Tyre was such a successful port, because it was practically, with with the Phoenicians of Tyre, having such a command of the seas, the island city was impregnable. So Nebuchadnezzar could destroy the mainland city, but he couldn't reach the island, and it survived the captivities in the Persian period, the Tyrians had built many ships for the Persians and doing so they had spread themselves back to the coasts and they thrived in the Persian period and in the subsequent Hellenistic period. So that you still had some Israelites who would identify themselves with the tribe of Asher. And we see that in Anna the Alexander destroyed the island city of Tyre by building a rampart out to it. And to build the rampart, he used the debris of the destroyed mainland city and had his men fill in a rampart, perhaps a couple of hundred yards at the most, out to the island so that he could get machines out there and and breach the walls and destroy the city, which is what he did about 330 BC. But by that time... During the Persian period that preceded Alexander, many of the Tyrians had expanded themselves back to the coastland on the mainland and no longer lived in the city. So that's how people of the tribe of Asher were still around in the time of Christ. And with that, we should probably discuss Ezekiel's lamentations over Tyre because these are significant in, in, and I will explain that uh, oh, in, momentarily. But these are very significant in proving the identity of the Israelites. I don't know if you have anything to add.
1: I was just going to say it's ironic that they uh, managed to survive, um, you know, the Babylonian um, siege. But then, um, the, you know, the city that got destroyed ended up being their undoing. So, so, so Yahweh got them back, basically.
0: Right, Absolutely. And and it's also indicative of the fact that the other races that moved into um, Palestine, the Edomites and the Canaanites, who remained there, they didn't care about that city. They left it in rubble for almost three hundred years, at least two hundred and fifty years, two hundred and sixty years, from the time the Book of Ezra destroyed the mainland city. It stayed there in the rubble. The rubble remained for Alexander to come 260 years later and use that rubble to build that causeway out to the island. And it took, I believe, nine or 11 months, one or the other. I forget the exact figure, but it was a, it, it was a good amount of time for him to do that with his armies, employing his armies in the task as Josephus describes in his Antiquities Antiquities of the Judeans as it should properly be titled. So, let's discuss Ezekiel's lamentations over Tyre. And I believe this is point 38 as we've been counting them in your 100 proofs. In all of the so. I'm sorry.
1: S- sorry, I just said I hope hope yeah, ho- I hope it's 38. Right.
0: Okay <laughs> in all of the ancient Greek accounts, beginning with Herodotus, the first surviving narrative historian, the Dardans, and therefore the Trojans, the Lalegas, Carians, and Malaysians, the Callicians and the Phoenicians were all related. and many of these groups were described as having originated in Crete, in other words, coming through Crete and then establishing other colonies in Anatolia and beyond, and in Greece. In the Greek myths, from as early as the Iliad, Europa was the daughter of Phoenix, the son of Agenor, king of Tyre, and the sister of Cadmus the Phoenician, who founded the Greek city of Thebes. Europa was the mother of Sarpedon, the legendary founder of Miletus, a notable city of the Carians. Caria was the district. It later became known as part of Ionia because the Ionians invaded it and took control of it in the ninth century BC, perhaps. But Caria was the district where Ephesus and Miletus were those ancient cities and it was the southwesternmost portion of Anatolia or modern Turkey. So Europa was the mother of Sarpedon the legendary founder of Miletus which was a notable city in Caria and Sarpedon was the father of Minos the famous king of the Cretans from which we get the name Minoans. Now Before the time of Herodotus, probably in the 6th century, there was a man named Thales, and Thales was from Miletus, and he was one of the seven sages of ancient Greece. One of the seven most notable men of wisdom in ancient pre-classical Greek history who were identified as sages in the classical period. This is before the famous philosophers that we know today. It was before Plato, hundreds of years before Plato, before Aristotle, before Socrates. The Greeks had these seven sages, and Thales was one of them. Herodotus attests that he was a Phoenician by race. He wasn't really a—to the Greeks, he wasn't really a Greek, but a lot of the Phoenicians were indeed Greek. So that there was always that distinction and at the same time connection between the Greeks and the Phoenicians. Herodotus attested that all of the colonies of the Phoenicians had come from Tyre as opposed to the other cities of the Phoenicians such as Byblos which is itself a colony and and Sidon especially. And that's significant if you understand the history of ancient Israel, because the Canaanites were very numerous in Sidon, but not in Tyre. And, and of course, once you start merchandising, there's always going to be some Jews. <laughs> you can't say there were no Canaanites in Tyre. I'm certain there were some, but the Canaanites were prevalent in Sidon, where Israelites were prevalent in Tyre. We'll see references to that later on. In the Bible, while Tyre was within the inheritance of Asher, the Septuagint version indicates that the walled cities of the Tyrians would be inherited by the tribe of Naphtali. Later, where Hiram, the king of Tyre, who was subject to David and Solomon, had sent to Solomon a craftsman, to help with the design of the temple, Flavius Josephus wrote in Book 8 of his Antiquities, Now Solomon sent for a craftsman out of Tyre, whose name was Hiram. He was by the same name as the king, probably, because he was a servant of that king, right? He was by birth of the tribe of Naphtali on the mother's side, for she was of that tribe. But his father was Ur, of the family of the Israelites. So Josephus didn't know from his version of the scriptures, which was obviously more complete than the Masoretic text, which came a thousand years later. He, he didn't know from his version of the scriptures that the father of Hiram, what which of the 12 tribes he was from, but he knew that he was an Israelite. The Jews have always, and I should say the modern Jews, have always disclaimed the Tyrians as Israelites. They must do that, because otherwise their entire narrative concerning their own identity disintegrates. In the book of Judges, there is the song of Deborah after the victory of Israel over the Canaanites in the north. And she asked, why Dan remained in ships, and Asher abode in his breaches, which are his port cities, the meaning of the Hebrew term, breaches being an archaic English term. His breaches are his port cities. Deborah asked why they did that, rather than come to the fight. Four centuries later, the census of David recounted the Israelites entire I'm sorry, counted the Israelites in Tyre and Sidon, just as in every other city in Israel. The relationship of David and Hiram, the king of Tyre, shows that Hiram was subservient to David and complied with him happily and voluntarily Solomon gave Hiram cities in Galilee as a gift, so that also shows that Hiram was an Israelite. Otherwise, Hiram, otherwise Solomon would have been transgressing against God to give Hiram control of anything in Galilee. But here in Ezekiel, there would be no doubt that the kings of Tyre were of Israel, and they certainly were. And we're going to learn that from the Lamentations of the king of Tyre in Ezekiel chapters 27 and 28 and the lamentations of the city itself. So if the Greeks of Thebes were white and they certainly were described as being fair and blonde in the tragic poets, and if the Minoans and the Trojans were white, and if the Malaysians who later made settlements in the Danu River Valley, around the Black Sea, and as far west as Ireland, if they were white, Ireland, I should say Spain and Ireland, because they were also in Spain, if they were white, how could the ancient Israelites have been anything but white once you understand the identity of the Phoenicians? But in Amos chapter 1, we read an accusation against the Tyrians who submitted themselves to Assyria and betrayed their own brethren. And it says, Thus saith Yahweh, for three transgressions of Tyrus, the city Tyre, and for four, and some people pronounce that Tyre, some people say Tyre, some people say Tyre, T-Y-R-E. It should probably be Touris, that was the Greek name for it. For three transgressions of Tyrus, and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof, because they delivered up the whole captivity to Edom and remembered not the brotherly covenant. But I will send a fire on the wall of Tyrus, which shall devour the palaces thereof. The whole captivity, Here it is evident that the Tyrians were selling their own brethren, who were defeated by the Assyrians, as slaves to the Edomites. They had to be Israelites in order to be accused of forgetting the brotherly covenant. This explains why Ezekiel would make lamentations for Tyre itself and for the king of Tyre. Whom did God ever lament in the words of his prophets? but the children of Israel, or divisions, or individuals from among them. Canaanites do not get lamented in the word of God. He promised to exterminate all the Canaanites. He demanded that the Israelites exterminate all the Canaanites. Only Israelites and other people of of the descendants of Adam are actually lamented in the Bible. And as far as I remember, only Israelites are lamented, even though there there is expressions of lamentation in Genesis chapter 6 and later concerning the flood of Noah and, and why God had to destroy most of the Adamic race at that time. There are two full chapters of Ezekiel devoted to lamentations over Tyre and her king. And Ezekiel was certainly not lamenting Canaanites or other aliens. And and the contents of the lamentations prove that. So in Ezekiel chapter 27, verse 6, we read in the King James Version, Of the oaks of Bashan had they made thine oars. The company of the Asherites had made thy benches of ivory, brought out of the isles of Kittim. Now, that phrase, company of the Asherites, comes from a Hebrew word, which is literally Ben Asherim. And it means sons of Asher, sons of descendants of the tribe of Asher. That's what it means and it is odd that the word is rendered as deck of boxwood in modern translations as the Jews protest any identification of the Phoenicians as Israelites they've taken this word ben at this phrase ben asherim and do you call a, a deck of boxwood a son of a tree? I, I don't know, right? That, that's just crazy to me. But that's what it's being called. It's Asher the tribe. It's spelled exactly like Asher the tribe. Asherim in Hebrew is the plural form of Asher, and that's the, stand, the standard Hebrew method of identifying a tribe from a patriarch is to just make his name plural, or even refer to his name in the singular. But Ben Asherim are the sons of the descendants of Asher. And today in, in and most of the King James versions, the new King James, the American King James, they've maintained the original reading of the King James. Young's literal transla- translation maintains this reading that Ben Asherim refers to the sons of Asher or the tribe of Asher so most of the new translations the recent translations such as the North American Standard Bible have corrupted the interpretation of this term into a deck of boxwood and it's talking about people it's talking about sons and and I'm sure that's true Jewish pressure to disassociate the Phoenicians of Tyre with the Israelites. If you look in Bible maps, and I'm sure you have, you look in these Bible maps and they'll draw the territory of the 12 tribes of Israel and leave a huge gap between there and the coast and call it Phoenicia, as if it was some separate country. But the truth is that Phoenicia was a term we only see in Greek writing to describe the coast of Palestine, whether it's in the distant past, such as during the time of the golden age of Phoenicia, or whether it's in the present time, in their own time, because the Greeks didn't start writing until um, Homer It is the earliest extant Greek writer, or perhaps Hesiod, that's sometimes argued, they were more than likely contemporaries, and they didn't start writing until the end of the 7th century BC. Now, some scholars claim that they started writing in the 8th century BC, but that's fine. That's immaterial to our argument here. The golden age of Phoenicia ended, and Tyre became a subject state to Assyrians, and later to the Persians, the golden age of Phoenicia ended by the end of the 7th century BC. And until that time, Phoenicia was indeed inhabited, the coast of Phoenicia, the coast of the tribe of Asher was indeed inhabited by Israelites. And that's proven throughout scripture in the interactions with the Tyrians, with the Sidonians, and with, with events such as Elijah's visit to Zarephath and his healing of the son of the widow, which occurs in the Books of Kings, where Zarephath is on the coast in between Tyre and Sidon. And, and Zarephath is mentioned several times in Scripture. In other contexts, in the New Testament, it's Sarepta.
1: Yeah, and um, as we mentioned um, in previous podcasts, um, the historians from the Greeks were Ionians. They were from Javan, so they wouldn't have the full understanding and knowledge of the Phoenicians being Israelites, or there even being 12 tribes. To them, they just saw these purple... Sales and die and just called them the purple people the Phoenicians, right? So it makes absolute perfect sense
0: Absolutely why, where
1: that name comes from uh, as you I believe explained in a previous podcast
0: Absolutely, if if you understand how the Greek language works how they get like um, Englishmen from England right and and how maybe the term England came from angle, right think the, the way language um progresses like that and and the way those adjectives are formed being english can be a an adjective it describes a man right as english it modifies the noun english man is englishman so it's basically a, an adjective that became a noun well how does that work in greek and and the word One word for purple, because there's two, one word for purple in Greek is foinus. And that word was used to describe the purple dye, which is extracted from a mollusk called the murex, M-U-R-E-X. It's a mollusk. I don't know if it's a clam or some other type of mollusk. I don't remember. Well, foinus described that, and Phoenicay was therefore used to describe the land from where the Phoenice was the, what was found, and and those people in the land Phoenicay, they in English are called Phoenicians. Phoenicay is Phoenicia or, or Phoenicia, so. That's how we get the term Phoenicians. And the Greeks merely called that coast after the purple dye that they sailed there to trade for, to, to get some, because they used it in Greece. It's that simple. That's where the word comes from. It doesn't describe a race. It doesn't describe a nation. It, it only describes the coast to the Greeks. And that area was called Phoenicia. Now, the word for Tyre in Hebrew is Tsor, T-S-O-R. And if you read George Rawlinson's notes, for example, in his um, translation of Herodotus' Histories, he even posited, and, and this is absolutely correct, that Tyre, Taurus to the Greeks, T-U-R-O-S, comes from the Hebrew word TSOR or Tsor, and Saurus also does. And for some reason, who knows why, the Greeks divided the TSOR of Tsor into two words, Taurus to describe the city, and psaurus to describe the land around the city so that is where the romans got syria from the greek soros s-u-r-o-s now the kings of tyre in the persian period had, had grown powerful and, and they had been vassals to the assyrians and they had been vassals to the ancient israelites and solomon awarded them land in, in northern palestine in, in different various times, the kings of Tyre ruled over Sidon on the mainland, as well as Tyre on the mainland, and must, much of the land in between, so eventually that land was known to the Romans as Syria, and they extended that name, because the Romans and Greeks, and, and this is clear in some of the writings, Strabo, I believe, was actually, um, had actually confused the two. The Romans and the Greeks actually confused Syrians and Assyrians so that sometimes Assyrians were mistakenly identified as Syrians. So Assyria was to the northeast of Syria, and it all became Syria to the Greeks and Romans. That's a simplified version, but it's true that's how syria got its name but it didn't have that name in ancient times to the hebrews it was aram and and there were diverse places within the land of syria and not all of them were aram abraham came from padanaram which is the plain of aram in far northern syria that's an example damascus was um originally a city of aram but the israelites had had taken control of it in david's time and and many israelites dwelt there even down until the period of, of the assyrians and babylonians hamath is in northern syria and that was a property of israel and and we've already explained the struggle between the Israelites and, and this the Assyrians for control of Hamath that Jeroboam II it belonged to Judah and Jeroboam II had gotten it back for Israel and and then the Assyrians came and took it after Jeroboam II died so that this is a digression but it's necessary to show that that this that these this these ancient Israelites and and Tyrians who were Israelites that they were fighting with Greeks and Persians and Assyrians and and Babylonians for control of the ancient world, which was the ancient white world. Because at this time, there is no Germany. There is no France. Yeah, sure, there are some um, Malaysian and Ionian settlements on the Danube River. and, And there are exploratory... Excursions into the north, whenever they could withstand the cold, to look for natural resources. But there was no Germany at this time. There may have been a few tribes of the Medes or, or of Israelites wandering at diverse times through what we what became known as Germany, or even of other Japhethite tribes. But there's no Germany at this time. That there's no France, except for some. Ionian Greek and, and Phoenician settlers in various river valleys. There's no France as we know it. The, the, these nations, the Ukraine and all these nations in ancient times, they weren't there. They didn't exist. That world would be formed from the migrations of people from the old world. As we've already, I think, established many times. Okay, this is too, probably too many digressions. I apologize. Ezekiel 27 6 identifies the tribe of Asher as a portion of the trade in and out of Tyre. And from there we read where Ezekiel chapter 27 goes on to describe all of the Genesis 10 Adamic nations, which had trade or other intercourse with the Tyrians. Because any notable port city eventually loses a lot of the um, distinction of the original tribe that founds it and and becomes an, an international city of commerce. And, and we see that today with New York, right? That New York and, and, and the ports in England and, and any other ports anywhere in the world, that they become multinational in, in their flavor. Well, here we have all of these people of these other nations in and out of Tyre. And, and Ezekiel's explaining that, that this became an ancient trading hub and it was. It, it was a very notable trading city. It was recognized by the Greek historians. But that period, it, its glory had, had been eclipsed by other cities further west in the Mediterranean by the time that the Greeks started writing. And that's basically what Ezekiel is prophesying here. And Ezekiel's writing in, towards the end of the 7th century B.C., which is about the time that the first Greeks began writing. So Ezekiel's talking about the end of the old world. And the ancient Greeks simply remember it as a memory. So these other nations which had trade or intercourse with the Tyrians, including Judah and the rest of Israel, are described here in these subsequent verses of Ezekiel. In chapter 27, and among these descriptions, in verse 19, we read Dan also and Javan going to and fro, occupied in thy fairs. Bright iron, cassia, and calamus were in thy market. And that can only be a reference to the Danan Greeks and the Ionian Greeks. And here we see a clear reference in scripture to the tribe of Dan. Outside of Palestine, something for which there is much other evidence. We've already talked about the tragic poets and how they describe the Danan Greeks who founded the Mycenaean civilization as having come from Egypt. And and they weren't Egyptians. So after that there are further references to the ships of Tarshish and warnings which is Iberia, right? And warnings that Tyre would be destroyed, which is the reason for the lamentation, because Tyre was about to be destroyed. The prophecy was fulfilled when Alexander the Great destroyed the island city in 330 BC, but the Book of Nazar II had already destroyed the mainland portion of the city around the same time that he had destroyed Jerusalem. Then in Ezekiel chapter 28, there is first a lamentation for the prince of Tyre, and then for the king. And it is very likely that this is a Hebrew parallelism, both titles referring to the same individual. The prince is considered to be wiser than Daniel the prophet, who was already famous at the time when Ezekiel was writing. But his wisdom and riches made him arrogant. The wisdom and riches not of Daniel, but of the king of Tyre, made him arrogant, believing himself to be a god. And for that, his punishment was announced, but he was nevertheless lamented. Yahweh God would not lament a devil. Where he is called a man in this chapter, where the Prince of Tyre is called a man, and and the King of Tyre is also later called a man, the Hebrew word is Adam. Where his destruction is forewarned, Yahweh said, I will bring strangers upon thee. And by that, it becomes evident that the Prince of Tyre must have been an Israelite. That is further proven in verse 10, where we read, Thou shalt die the deaths of the uncircumcised by the hand of strangers. For I have spoken it, saith Yahweh God. And therefore it is evident that the Prince of Tyre was a circumcised Israelite. Thus we read in Flavius Josephus. In Against Appion, where he was citing Herodotus in Book 1, line 169, his words are these. The only people who were circumcised in their privy members originally were the Colchians, the Egyptians, and the Ethiopians. But the Phoenicians and those Syrians that are in Palestine confess that they learned it from the Egyptians. Now, Herodotus is evidently making his own summary of the beginnings of the circumcisions of the Israelites in Egypt, because that's where it started, right? It really started with Abraham. But if you read the um, the Exodus accounts, in the captivity in Egypt, the Israelites were not circumcising themselves. And Moses had had them all circumcised as soon as they departed from egypt by syrians in palestine herodotus was referring to the people of judea and that can be established by other passages where herodotus had used the same term which is without doubt referring to judeans he called them syrians in palestine Then a little further on, Josephus said, This, therefore, is what Herodotus says that the Syrians that are in Palestine are circumcised. But there are no inhabitants of Palestine that are circumcised, excepting the Judeans. And therefore, it must be his knowledge of them that enabled him to speak so much concerning them. In other words, Josephus is also making the assertion which is true that by saying Syrians that are in Palestine Herodotus was meaning to describe Judeans but to the Greek outsider they're all Syrians where just as Canadians to an American outsider are all Canadians in spite of the fact that some of them are French and some of them are English and sadly in spite of the fact that some of them are squat monster Eskimos. (laughs) They're still Canadians. So we see that Josephus there indirectly admitted that the Phoenicians are also Israelites, as Tyre was also in Palestine. The king of Tyre, in Ezekiel 28, was described as being the anointed cherub that covereth. And I, meaning Yahweh God, and I have set thee so, thou wast upon the holy mountain of God. And that proves that he was an Israelite, ruling over at least a large portion of the people of Israel, who are the mountain of God. When Yahweh uses that term, mountain of God, he's not talking about Zion in the land of Judah. He's not talking about the physical mountain. He's talking about the people of Israel. It's a poetic allegory for the people themselves. Tyre itself certainly was not a mountain. Then we see once again that he was an Israelite, but fell into sin where it says, Thou wast perfect in thy ways from the day that thou wast created, till iniquity was found in thee. And subsequent language further elucidates that same thing, that this king of Tyre was a man who was an Israelite who fell into sin. He was an Israelite set to rule over this great city in Israel, and he fell into sin.
1: And um, th- this is the one of those verses that is always used to try and twist it, that Satan is the fallen angel and not the Jews, and they love it. Um, along with, you know, certain other verses that they pick throughout scripture, like um, the one about Job, you know, Satan wandering around, and the one where Christ was tempted by Satan. they try and find a list and then build this picture that everything can be blamed on some boogeyman behind the scenes and that it's definitely not the Jews, right?
0: Right. By spiritualizing Satan in the minds of unsuspecting Christians – It removes any thought that Satan is actually a literal genetic entity within this world. And the Bible actually does identify the Jews collectively as Satan or the synagogue of Satan or the devil. They collectively are the devil. And that might be a whole other explanation, but we've already explained that a thousand times at Christagenia. So I, I, I don't know how to summarize it better than that here in a short space. However, this is talking about a man and even the King James Version makes the mistake of making or forcing the word of God in Ezekiel to tell this anointed cherub Thou and this is verse nine of Ezekiel chapter twenty eight wilt thou yet say before him that slayeth thee, I am God because and and I've described this as well in ancient contexts, the kings of great nations or great cities imagine themselves to be gods, or imagine themselves to be gods on earth. the Roman Caesars later in history, try to imagine themselves to be gods. The ancient Egyptians described themselves as being gods and as being the pharaohs and as being the sun on earth. The ancient Hittite kings imagined themselves to be gods and the sun on earth. This is an old um, phenomenon that kings would out of their own self-conceit and lust and their own power, which they've acquired, actually imagine themselves to be gods. And this has been going on for millennia. So yeah, this um, is the, the lack of humility found in the king of Tyre in the 7th century, the, towards the end of the 7th century BC, as Ezekiel writes this
1: perhaps yeah, at the Ju- beginning. Ju- Julius Caesar, he was deified after he died. So so even though he died, they made him into a god. And these are the Romans who are meant to be, you know, a bit more modern and a bit more smart. Y- you'd think, how the hell can you deify somebody who just <clears throat> but, but it happened, right? Well, well right. On day, all emperors were gods. Absolutely. They were deemed gods.
0: They were deified officially by the Roman Senate. And at first, the successors to caesar were very careful not to call themselves gods augustus wouldn't call himself a god but did express the understanding that he would be a god after he died and he called himself the son of god because he was he was really the nephew of julius caesar but julius caesar adopted him to make him his heir. he called himself the son of god because he was the son of julius caesar who was deified as a god and I explained this at length in, in my John commentary quite recently. So, so later Roman Caesars, after Augustus, and I, I'm pretty sure by the time of Nero, if not sooner, they started declaring themselves to be gods. And the Spasian wouldn't go there, I don't think, and Titus wouldn't go there, but his other son, Domitian, did. Later, Roman emperors declared themselves to be gods. It, it's, it's an age-old um, problem with men of power that their heads grow and, and they become self-conceited and narcissistic and imagine that they're gods. Herod, Herod Agrippa I, in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, in chapter 12, Herod Agrippa I was dressed dressed Marvelously gilt in silver and gold and gave some oration to the people of Tyre. The rebuilt city Tyre in in the second temple period, it was it, it was rebuilt to an extent. He gave some oration to them. The island city was never rebuilt again after Alexander, but the mainland city was rebuilt to an extent by the period of the New Testament. So Herod Agrippa I gave this oration, and the people applauded him, and the people announced that he was a god, and he never denied it. So Yahweh struck him dead, and that's how the Book of Acts describes the death of Herod Agrippa I. For that same reason that we see here with the king of Tyre. So yes, this verse. There is verse, nothing
1: unusual for the king of Tyre to do this in Israelite, since so many uh, other Israelite kings did the exact same thing
0: right absolutely it's not peculiar at all so many ancient kings did the same thing too this verse Ezekiel 28 verse 9 in the King James reads "Wilt thou say wilt thou yet say before him that slayeth thee I am God and this is God challenging the king of Tyre in this lamentation will you say it again that you're God will you still say that you're God and then it says But thou shalt be a man, and no God, in the hand of him that slays thee. And there's a lie in the translation. Because those words, shalt be, in the King James Version, are in italics. They are added into the text. Now, sometimes, in translating things from Hebrew into Greek... Uh, or, or Hebrew into English, or Greek into English, the original language is missing the actual verb, to be, which it is are, A-R-E in English, right, in, in, in certain contexts, or is in other contexts. So when it's not present in the, in, in the original language, When the verb isn't present but it's implied should we force an interpretation that puts this into the future which is what the king james version did imagining that some spiritual satan boogeyman is going to transmogrify into a man is going to be converted into a man and that's not what it's saying it's saying, but thou art a man and no God in the hand of him that slays thee. Just as the Prince of Tyre was told the same thing, thou art a man in the beginning, in, in the beginning of the Lamentation. So those words shall be were added to the text, but that's not what it's saying. It's saying thou art a man.
1: And um, Alexander slaughtered the entire city. He left no man alive and sold all the women and children into slavery, uh, just so people know.
0: Well, I'm sorry. Verse nine. Verse nine pertains to the prince of Tyre. The lamentation for the king of Tyre begins in verse twelve. But I believe that's a Hebrew parallelism. It's a reduplication. It's describing the same entity twice because there's not a separate prince of Tyre and the king of Tyre. It's that the, the the words are basically very often synonyms, and they're referring to the same individual. The word prince is from the Hebrew word nagid, which is a leader, a ruler, a captain, a prince. The word king is from the Hebrew word melek, which is a little more specifically a king. The king of Tyre is described with much the same language, this poetic allegory that these um pictures from genesis that the anointed cherub as the prince of tyre is described the statement to the king of tyre that thou hast been in eden the garden of god every precious stone was like covering once these are compared it's yet yet you see that they're um that the anointed cherub that covereth, you'll see that this is poetic allegory, but this language is describing the same entity that the language concerning the Prince of Tyre had described. This is just describing it in a different way and using even further allegory from Genesis in order to make its point but it's only poetic allegory. It's not to be understood literally. Thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was thy covering. Well, in Ezekiel chapter 31, the Assyrian is described as the greatest tree in the garden of God. So when we consider that, and then we consider this passage, thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God, we realize that ezekiel is using this phrase garden of god or eden the garden of god to describe the adamic world of his time as being the garden of god because the race of adam is what yahweh god had planted as far as men are concerned and the Assyrian is part of the race of Adam, and the king of Tyre being an Israelite is part of the race of Adam. These are descendants of Adam, so it's being described as the garden of God because that's what God planted in Eden, and it's poetic allegory hearkening to Genesis chapters 2 and 3 to the same language. That's all it is.
1: Yeah, I've seen um, interpretations where they imagine that the original fallen angel had all these, um, you know, coverings on him when he was created and he had organs in him and that he used that to seduce the world, you know, c- crazy stuff. But you believe that um, it's just referring to how rich and wealthy he was with all these precious stones and everything that he was born into it and, as a king. Essentially, absolutely. God made him, uh, gave him that position from birth. Absolutely.
0: That, that's absolutely what it's saying. And these images from Eden are being used as poetic allegory to describe that. Because God created this king just as well as God created the Adamic man in Eden. And and then that same phrase is used by Ezekiel, Garden of God, to describe the Assyrians. So, if you insist that this, in Ezekiel chapter 27, that this is a literal reference to the garden of eden and that it's saying that the king of tyre was actually present in the garden of eden when adam was created so therefore he must be a quote-unquote satan if you insist on that interpretation you have to be consistent in ezekiel chapter 31 and insist that the assyrians were also (laughs) in the garden of eden when adam was created and then you run into a problem Because the Assyrians are descendants of Asher, and Asher wasn't born until Genesis chapter 10. So they couldn't have existed in the Garden of Eden. Therefore, here and in Ezekiel chapter 31, where he uses the same allegories, we have to understand that they're only poetic allegories and they're not to be interpreted literally, because the literal interpretation is not consistent from chapter 28, three chapters later, to chapter 31. It's inconsistent, so it doesn't work.
1: And that's why Jews only like little snippets of, um, you know, books and chapters from the Bible. They hate going through the whole thing because their narrative falls apart.
0: Absolutely. Where it says, thou art a man, the word is Adam. Adam. And if this entity, this king of Tyre, is an Adamic man, then how could he have been a devil or a Satan in the garden of God? It's not consistent. There's there's serious inconsistencies with the Judeo-Christian interpretation of these verses. It's referring to a man who's the king of Tyre and it's using poetic allegory from Genesis to describe the grandeur that he had as king and the wealth that he had as king. That's all it's doing. And in Ezekiel chapter 28, it it says to the prince of Tyre, it attributes to him the words, I am a God. I sit in the seat of God in the midst of the seas. Yet, and, and then Yahweh's answer to that through Ezekiel the prophet is, yet thou art a man and not God, and that word is also Adam. Just as it is in verse 9. If he's a fallen angel, if he's a Satan, he can't be an Adam. But it's stating very plainly that he's only an Adam. In those multiple ways, the Judeo-Christian interpretation of these verses falls apart. This is referring to the king of Tyre as an Israelite. It proves that he's an Israelite. Once we see through, once we set the fantastic Judeo-Christian Jewish interpretations aside and see through the language and the poetic allegory to see the core of the message actually being expressed, this proves that the king of Tyre was an Israelite who was granted much wealth and a great. Station in the Garden of God, which is the Adamic world of the time, and and he imagined himself to be a god. So for that reason, he was going to be destroyed. At the end of Ezekiel chapter twenty-eight, attention is turned to Zidon, and and that's another word that's problematical in in bringing it into any other language, because that T S that begins the name Zidon is often translated into a z or sometimes into an s and sometimes the letter the the hebrew letter is translated into a t so we have thor and tyrus and sorus and and then we have sedan with a T S at the beginning and then we have zidon or sedan they're the same word right Sidon is one place from which the Israelites never drove out all of the Canaanites, as we see in the opening chapters of the book of Judges. And it is where Sidonians were purposely kept as slaves from the days of Solomon. The children of Israel having been warned in the books of Numbers and Joshua that the Canaanites would be thorns and pricks under them, We read that same thing here in verse 24 of Ezekiel chapter 28. It's already addressed Tyre. Now it's addressing Sidon. And it says, There shall be no more a pricking briar under the house of Israel, nor any grieving thorn of all that are round about them that despise them. And they shall know that I am Yahweh God. The merchandising and colonies established from Tyre being one of the vehicles through which Yahweh had dispersed the Israelites abroad in keeping with the promises to Abraham that his seed would become many nations. We see at the very end of the lamentations over Tyre and her king the following promise in Ezekiel chapter 28 from verse 25. Thus saith Yahweh God, When I shall have gathered the house of Israel from the people among whom they are scattered, and shall be sanctified in them in the sight of the heathen or nations, then shall they dwell in their land that I have given to my servant Jacob, and they shall dwell safely therein, and shall build houses and plant vineyards. Yea, they shall dwell with confidence when I have executed judgments upon all those that despise them round about them, and they shall know that I am. Yahweh, their God. And that's how the lamentations over the king of Tyre, the prince of Tyre, and, and the mention of the Sidonians as pricks and thorns, that that's how they end. And, and it establishes that those Tyrians certainly were Israelites. I don't know if you have any response to that or anything to add.
1: The only thing I wanted to bring up is, you know where... um. Josephus had a slightly better, uh, you know, fatter Bible, I guess, and he knew that uh, Naphtali was uh, the birth mother. Do you believe um, that the that the Kikes have gradually over time been shaving off verses here and there that can um, prove that we are the Israelites, and that's oh, likely absolutely. the reason how verses have gradually been disappearing. That they've
0: absolutely be- been purposely neglecting or destroying ancient literature. Remember that the Jews all throughout the Roman and medieval periods, the Jews controlled that the trade in books and manuscripts from the East, they were the translators, that they were the bridge from the ancient world, the bridge of understanding from the ancient world to the, medieval world, and, and they set themselves up as the bridge of understanding from the ancient world to the modern world. Today, if, if you look at all archaeology, it is so entrenched in anthropology. The Jews invented the science of anthropology. At one time, anthropology was simply a part of the study of archaeology. The Jews broke it off, and, and under Franz Boas and, and Jews like that, They've totally corrupted our view of the ancient world, which is a view that is absolutely contrary to the view shared in, in, by educated men throughout the entire medieval period. They've totally corrupted our, our thoughts of antiquity and, and the, the origin of races. If you look at... Um, and if you look at medieval artwork depicting Noah and Sham and Ham and Japheth, they're all white. And, and later on, the Catholic Church, when it sought to be all inclusive with the other races and sought to convert them to Christianity, then they started making Ham black and and, and a chinaman or or shem and oriental and jepetha european then they started playing those games which don't work they don't work at all as we've already explained here probably several times so josephus had access to something else that may have told him the identity of Hiram, the tyrian artificer the tyrian craftsman he had the ancient chronicles of tyre as we've discussed which were translated from hebrew into greek by menander of ephesus either in the late fourth or third centuries bc i forget exactly when but it was around there It was either in in the Hellenistic period in in the late 4th century or possibly in the 3rd century BC that Menander of Ephesus translated the Chronicles of Tyre. Now, that would have been um, something similar to our Book of Chronicles or our Book of Kings concerning the, the people of Judah and Israel. And we would have had that from the Tyrian perspective If we still had the works of Menander of Ephesus, Josephus had access to them. He quotes from them all throughout his work Against Appion. Against Appion is a treatise that Josephus wrote to refute one of the Greek writers who tried to claim that Judea was, was a novel new contrivance, that it didn't really have any position in antiquity. And Josephus was using the writings of the Greeks like Herodotus and and others in order to refute that position and prove that Judea was actually very, very old. That was the whole point of against Appian. Probably in response to criticisms of his antiquities of the Judeans. From now we should probably move on to the Minor Prophets.
1: Yep, absolutely. The, They're the just minus- as important, right, as um, the big prophets.
0: Oh, absolutely! Major prophets, absolutely. In, in their their prophecies, prove that God will will deal exclusively with Israel and Israel alone, among other things, and and. <sighs> The, the minor prophets are also instrumental in connecting the Israelites to the outside world, that all of this stuff in the Bible didn't happen in a, bu- in a bubble, and, and that it actually happened. And that what we claim from the New Testament and from Jeremiah and Ezekiel concerning the prophecies of the New Testament, that that same attitude is held throughout all of the minor prophets. So I would rather discuss the Minor Prophets in their correct chronological order, which is significantly important to understanding them at all, if you don't get the chronology down. And there's three or four books of Minor Prophets that the mainstream commentators and the, the, the order that they appear in in the King James Version, it, it's totally wrong. They're totally wrong in their claims about when these prophets wrote. And I've proven that because I've completed commentaries on all of the minor prophets at Christogenia, and I address the issues of chronology in those commentaries. It's spread out over several years' work, so so it's nothing that I could summarize right here. But here we're going to discuss the minor prophets in the correct chronological order. And of the 14 minor prophets, Jonah was the earliest And he tried to jump a ship to Tarshish. He tried to jump a ship to Europe to escape the obligation laid upon him to go to Nineveh. At the time, the Assyrian Empire was just beginning its expansion into Syria. And perhaps a few decades or so later, the Assyrians would begin to invade Israel and Judah. According to the Greek versions, the Assyrians worship Semiramis, a fish goddess who lost her mother as a baby and was nursed by doves, according to the Greek histories, I should say. The name Jonah comes from the Hebrew word for dove, and Jonah came to Nineveh in a fish. If the Assyrians worship Semiramis, a fish goddess, And Semiramis, by the legend, was nursed by doves. That's why the Assyrians would listen to a man who came out of fish whose name meant dove. And that's what Jonah means. That is the key to understanding why the Assyrians believed Jonah. For that reason alone, the Assyrians believed him. And this also helps to show a degree of continuity of culture between the Hebrews and the Assyrians, even if the Assyrians were pagan. Their languages were both Semitic, and they had many similarities, and they also had many similar myths and customs. Because remember, this time, many of the people of Israel are also pagan. They took off into paganism after the kingdom was divided some of them remained pious to yahweh to god but they for the most part took off after paganism the next prophet hosea was a contemporary of isaiah he wrote during the same time the time of the same kings which isaiah had written from uzziah to hezekiah but he did not write much And it is comparatively, right? And it is not entirely clear that he lived quite as long. He was writing during the days of Hezekiah, but whether or not he wrote to the end of Hezekiah's rule, as Isaiah did, that we don't know. In Hosea chapter 1, we see prophecy stating that Israel would be divorced, that they would no longer be the people of God, and that they would not receive mercy. But then, immediately, in those same prophecies, there was a promise of future reconciliation with those same people. The Apostle Peter acknowledged this, where he quoted that same passage from Hosea chapter 1 in his first epistle. Then, in chapter 2, after Israel had been depicted as a bride divorced by her husband, God promises in Hosea to betroth Israel once again in the future and to remain betrothed to her forever. There were no promises to betroth himself to any other people. So, many centuries later, perhaps nearly eight centuries later, when Christ came, He was described by himself, by John the Baptist, and by Paul of Tarsus as being the bridegroom and husband of Israel. So, if Yahweh was to remarry Israel, and that was upheld in the message of the new covenant, why would the apostles go to any people? but white Europeans, Syrians, and Mesopotamians, which is exactly where they went. Why would the apostles go to anyone else but Israel? That alone proves that the Israelites are to be found in the white Europeans, Syrians, and Mesopotamians of the ancient world. And when I say Mesopotamians, I'm referring to people such as the Parthians and the Sake or Scythians who remained in Mesopotamia past, well, well past the period of the time of Christ many of them were still there many of them remained there and remained Christian all the way up to the Islamic conquests when they were slowly marginalized and, and, and destroyed and pushed out of the way or whatever whatever their fate was, because many of them served different fates, right? Converted forcibly or, or killed or enslaved or, or whatever happened to them as individuals under the Islamic period. In Hosea chapter 9, there was a verse which records Yahweh as having said, Ephraim, as I saw Tyrus, is planted in a pleasant place. But Ephraim shall bring forth his children to the murderer. And the Tyrians were composed of the northern tribes of Israel. Asher, Zebulun, Naphtali, and Dan. Then a few verses later, in chapter 10, we read, The inhabitants of Samaria shall fear because of the calves of beth For the people thereof shall mourn over it, and a priest thereof that rejoiced on it for the glory thereof because it is departed from it. Bethhaven means house of vanity and it refers to Israel in general but it was also a town in Ephraim after the kingdom divided from the time of Jeroboam 1 the children of Israel took to worshipping calves once again and so it was among the Phoenicians, who took calf or bull worship with them as they spread throughout the Mediterranean. But this is especially known in Crete among the Minoans. As we explained earlier in a series, the Minoans were also related or earlier this evening even, the Minoans were also related to the Phoenicians by the Greek writers. Hosea chapter 13 speaks of bowership, which is found throughout the early Mediterranean nations and also in Gaul and in the British Isles. While there is much more evidence to prove this, it shows a commonality of culture between the Israelites entire and the ancient white nations of the Mediterranean basin.
1: This still was there. Um, any reason why Jonah went to warn the Assyrians, but we never seem to get any warnings to uh, like the other uh, Adamic races. I'm sorry. Repeat that, please. So, sorry, um, the way Jonah went to Nineveh to the Assyrians to give him a warning. Sorry, I'm going a bit back here. But um, we, we never really see any other warnings to the other Adamic races. Uh, other Adamic races. It seems only Assyria, like, got this warning.
0: Well, well, I mean, the Babylonians got warnings, received warnings from Scripture, and the Persians received warnings from Scripture. But the Assyrians were the empire of the time that Yahweh had used to remove Israel to that new land that they were promised in 2nd Samuel chapter 7 i believe and elsewhere in the old testament it was it was warned that they were going to be taken into captivity as early as the book of numbers it was warned that asher would take israel captive Asher being a reference to the ancestor of the Assyrians from which they received their name. The Babylonians have warnings and the Persians have warnings in in Scripture, but the, the Persian Empire didn't arise until after all of Israel and Judah were taken off into captivity. So Assyrians treated differently for that reason.
1: And as um, Assyria was so powerful, the, the other nations wouldn't have been able to do anything anyways. So the warnings would have to go to Assyria. So, so it all makes sense, yeah.
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely. It makes sense. Once you understand the chronology of the minor prophets and, and the major prophets, it all makes sense. that These minor prophets, Hosea, and, and we'll, we'll speak about Amos and Micah briefly in, in as we progress this evening, but Hosea... Amos and Micah were all contemporaries of Isaiah. They were all writing around the same time. Hosea didn't write as much as Isaiah did, and Amos probably wrote as much as Hosea did, but nowhere's near the volume that Isaiah had of prophecy. And Micah is even briefer, is an even shorter book of prophecy. Now, Amos and Micah evidently didn't prophecy or or have a ministry as long as Isaiah's, but it was still significant. And they still had things to say which lend to the narrative or corroborate the narrative offered by Isaiah and Hosea in many aspects. So I hope that answered your question. Um, prophecies against Persia exist in Daniel chapter 7, no, Daniel chapter 8, or well, perhaps it's even a little later. In in the prophecy of the goat and the ram, in Daniel, I'll, I'll have to go looking for where that is, because now I'm, Daniel chapter 8, is a a goat that came from the west and a ram that had two horns and the ram that had two horns represents the Persian empire the two horns of media and persia right because it was formed from those two nations from a a, a federation of those two nations so we had the ram with two horns pushing west in Daniel chapter 8. And, and then a goat rises up with a notable horn and overcomes the ram. And the goat waxed very great. And, and that goat describes the empire of Alexander. I wouldn't read too much into the fact that it's described as a goat, however, in, in reference to the parable of the sheep and the goats, because Alexander certainly was also an Israelite. Not all symbols mean the same thing across many books of prophecy that's not true they shouldn't all be interpreted the same way in every book that they appear. So that describes that the the, um, the ram pushing west are the wars of the Persians to to conquer the Greeks, which failed and the goat which confronts the ram is Alexander who destroyed the ram and took possession of all of the ram's territory which is alexander had come to control the ancient persian empire when he conquered it so that's that there are other prophecies of other adamic nations some of them aren't good at all and and they're all in favor of the children of israel ultimately even assyria was seen as a protector of the children of israel that would be temporary protection in that first minor prophet which we discussed tonight in the prophecy of Jonah. Jonah built a a booth or a tent, a sukkah in Hebrew, and sheltered himself after he had finished prophesying to the people of Nineveh and a gourd springs up and it protects Jonah from the sun for three days and it withers and dies. And, and that very likely represents the fact that the Israelites, taken into captivity by the Assyrians, would be sheltered by the Assyrians temporarily until the Assyrian Empire withers and dies and the Israelites begin their migrations into Europe. That's what I read into the prophecy of the gourd in the last chapter of Jonah.
1: And uh, Jonah probably didn't even realize that, right? He, he was just hoping to see uh, Nineveh burn.
0: Right. Exactly. Jonah wanted to see Nineveh destroyed. Because, and, and th- this is another proof that Jonah was the earliest of the minor prophets. When Jonah had given his prophecy... Assyria had not yet conquered Israel, they hadn't yet been in Israel, they were just beginning to expand their power and project themselves into Syria and lands that were formerly possessed by the Israelites syria hamath and those places that struggle that i had explained earlier between jeroboam two of israel who regained those lands for israel and then after he died the assyrians came back and took them again well that is the that that is the historical background which accounts for the fear which jonah had of the assyrians and why he didn't want to go preach to his enemies, but Yahweh made him do it. That accounts for that. Jonah is actually mentioned in relation to Jeroboam 2 in the book of Kings, in chapter, 2 Kings chapter 14. Jonah is actually mentioned. As soon as Jeroboam 2 restores Hamath and Damascus and, and those lands for Israel, it's mentioned a prophecy which was spoken by the hand of his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, which must be the Jonah of the book of Jonah. But the particular prophecy mentioned in second kings 14 is not in our current book of jonah and perhaps if it were as you said before things have been removed from our scriptures <laughs> if it were there we would better understand that the narrative of the history that i'm trying to relate here The struggle between Israel and Assyria for control of the white world of the time. And Assyria prevailed and the Israelites went off into captivity. Yahweh only really sought to punish them for their sins and to move them to those new lands that they were promised from all the way back in in the Deuteronomy, chapter 32, verse 8. If you really read Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 8, and and this we're going off on many digressions here, I'm sorry. If you read Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 8, when the Most High divided to the nations their inheritance, when he separated the sons of Adam, he set the balance of the people according to the number of the children of Israel. Well, guess what? The children of Israel never dwelt in their own land, in Palestine even though Yahweh wanted them to destroy all the Canaanites, that land belonged to the Canaanites. That land was given to the Canaanites. They occupied that land when the nations of Genesis chapter 10 were divided. And even though the Canaanites mixed their race, they became bastards, they were descendants of the sons of Ham in Genesis chapter 10, and that land was given to them. So in Deuteronomy 32.8, it's referring back to Genesis, and the land of Canaan did not belong to the children of Israel. It wasn't set aside for the children of Israel, as Deuteronomy 32, eight suggests, and therefore it was never intended to be the land that the children of Israel were destined to inhabit, Ultimately and the land they were destined to inhabit ultimately has to be outside of the land that was divided between the nations in Genesis chapter 10 and 11. And Deuteronomy 32.8 insists on that. So where is it? It must be in in Northern Europe, Central Asia, um, Western Europe, all the lands that were indeed vacant were not occupied by any of the other Genesis 10 Adamic tribes. So that's my reading of understanding of Deuteronomy 328. And that's my understanding of 2 Samuel 7, chapter 7 verse 10, which promises the children of Israel a permanent home somewhere other than Palestine. We we our interpretation of scriptures that we're programmed with in our heads is the Jewish interpretation. That Palestine would forever be the Holy Land is not necessarily true, even though in the end it will be ours once again, because there won't be any Jews, and perhaps in a couple of hundred years we'll be arguing about whether or not Jews ever existed. (laughs) Okay, Hosea, Amos, and Micah were all contemporaries of Isaiah, they were all writing at the same time. Amos prophesied the captivities of Israel and the desolation of all the surrounding nations. So in many ways, he corroborates Isaiah, who also did those same things, as we explained last week, and Hosea and Micah also do those things. In Amos chapter 5, verse 27, we read in part where it addresses Israel, therefore I will cause you to go into captivity beyond Damascus, saith Yahweh. So once again, we see that Israel was taken into captivity in the north, just as we read in Isaiah and Jeremiah. In Micah chapter 5, there is a prophecy of the captivity of Israel, like we saw in Isaiah, which also promises that Israel shall destroy her captors, as we read in Isaiah. And it says from verse 4 And he shall stand and feed in the strength of Yahweh. In the name of the, in the majesty of the name of Yahweh his God, and they shall abide. For now shall he be great unto the ends of the earth, the children of Israel being spread to the ends of the earth. And this man shall be the peace when the, and, and that word, I'm sorry, that word man was added into the text. And this shall be the peace when the Assyrians shall come into our land. And when he shall tread in our palaces, then, and and the fulfillment of this is obscure, but it did happen in history, then shall we raise against him, speaking of the Israelites, seven shepherds and eight principal men, and they shall waste the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod in the entrances thereof. Thus, and, and of course, Nimrod, Nimrod. that's a reference to the land of Cush in the east, that Ethiopia of the east that we've explained here. Nimrod was a son of Ham who established an empire. And at first, when he established that, as it's explained in Genesis chapter 10, he ruled over the cities of the Assyrians, as well as Babylonia and, and the land of Shinar and other parts of mesopotamia that was the empire of nimrod and the land of nimrod in the entrances thereof and thus he shall deliver us from the assyrian when he comes into our land and when he treads within our borders the israelites were delivered from the assyrians but not until after they themselves were in captivity as the prophecy suggests Then we read a little further on in in that same chapter in Micah. And the remnant of Jacob shall be among the nations in the midst of many people as a lion among the beasts of the forests and as a young lion among the flocks of sheep, who, if he goes through, both treads down and tears in pieces and none can deliver. Thine hand shall be lifted up upon thine adversaries, and all thine enemies shall be cut off. And this was fulfilled several centuries later, as all of the old empires of the east were ultimately overcome by the descendants of the Israelites, by the Cimmerians, by the Scythians, and by the Parthians. Yet these prophets were writing these things as Israel was first being taken captive by Assyria. So the words must have sounded impossible when they were written. But it happened. The next minor prophets, Joel and Nahum, seem to have been not long before Jeremiah and Ezekiel. When Joel had written, the first temple was not yet destroyed. And and that's evident in Joel chapter 2 verse 17. But he was writing of Israel as it had already been in Assyrian captivity, which is evident in the parable of the locusts, cankerworms, pommelworms, and caterpillars in his opening chapter. Joel was the prophet of the first Christian Pentecost, which was acknowledged by Peter in Acts chapter 2. Joel also prophesied that Edom, Egypt, and the other lands of Palestine would be a desolation, which they are unto this day. Those lands are desolate. They're virtually uninhabitable except for modern irrigation technology and modern energy technology. They would still be desert hellholes, as they were in the 19th century. Now, one misconception is where it says of the Tyrians that the children also of Judah and the children of Jerusalem Have you sold unto the Grecians? Because in Hebrew, the word is Yavanna, which is only the name for the Ionians and not for all of the Greeks. So the Tyrians had sold captured Israelites to the Ionians, as well as to the Edomites, which we read in Amos. However, there are absolutely no descriptions of any Negro slaves in Athens. Where are the nigger slaves in Athens if the Israelites are black? They're not there. So the Israelites being sold as slaves to the Athenians must have been white. There are no niggers in Athens in the time of Christ. Or or for another several hundred years.
1: And right now all of our nations have a lot of um, locusts, canker worms, palmer worms, and caterpillars uh, overrun us, right?
0: Well, well, right, and, and that prophecy in Joel does, it, it does have a dual meaning, and that can also be established. And, and that's what's happening to us now, just as it happened in ancient Israel, where Joel had described all of the invaders and, and the consortium of nations that took the Israelites into captivity as locusts and palmer worms and such forth. Well, well it's happening again today. And, and today, I I, I I don't enjoy it, but I, I like to contrast the locusts, cankerworms, worms, palmer worms, and caterpillars to Negroes and, and Mexicans and Asians and, and the Arabs, because basically that's what's going on. And they're devouring our lands again. All of white Christendom is suffering that plague today.
1: Yeah, and always Jews at the top of the food chain, right? As we said last podcast.
0: Well, well if we understood the allegory of Scripture and we understood the historical background of Scripture, it be, these allegories become very clear, and, and Scripture would be so much more meaningful, and we would learn so much more from Scripture than most Judeo-Christians do now, who think they know things, and, and they think that these locusts, caterpillars, cankerworms, and worms were actual bugs. Where Joe was describing races of people, he wasn't describing bugs. That's just nuts. <laughs> it's sad that these simplified Jewish interpretations of prophecy, for the most part, because most of the, even the Reformers, even Martin Luther, Got many of his interpretations of the books of the prophets right from the Jews, right, from, and he admits it in his own work. He admits it that he's getting these interpretations from Paula Burgos or Nicholas of Lyra or other Converso Jewish commentators on Scripture who wrote these voluminous commentaries in the thirteenth, fourteenth, fifteenth centuries, and they've been duping Christians for a thousand years. or or for at least 700. And the Judeo-Christian doctrines today have come out of those same commentaries and and out of those same um, Protestant church founders like Luther and Calvin who used those Jewish commentaries to understand scripture. And as long as we understand scripture from the devil, we're going to be fooled by the devils. That's what's been going on with Christendom for, for a thousand years.
1: Yeah, and when you f- consider, like, just 50 years ago, a man could wo- uh, could have, um, you know, a basic job, like a teacher, and that would be enough to buy a house, you know, on that salary, support a wife and kids, and now you've got no chance. Like, he'd probably be living in his mum's basement, or, you know, or he'd have to <laughs> get a massive mortgage, or, or his wife will have to work. Etc. It's because of all these locust, can- canker worms, etc., devouring everything, making everything more expensive for all of us. Right? Just, just another angle.
0: Absolutely. Now, I mean, there's many angles, but someday we'll learn to actually read the Bible and 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 believe what the Scripture says without the Jewish filter over our faces, which is basically what most Judeo Christians have today. The Prophet Nahum is the next prophet. He wasn't necessarily after Joel, but he he wasn't necessarily before Joel either. They both wrote in the same period, more or less. The prophet Nahum also wrote a prophecy of the destruction which was about to come upon Nineveh, which included a promise of the gospel, which is very similar to one found in Isaiah chapter 52. Along with this, Nahum corroborates the captivity of Israel, where he wrote, For Yahweh has turned away the excellency of Jacob as the excellency of Israel. For the emptiers, meaning the Assyrians, for the emptiers have emptied them out and marred their vine branches, meaning the race, the people. So Yahweh would avenge Israel by destroying Nineveh. And the last chapter of the book reads in part Behold, I am against thee, saith Yahweh of hosts, and I will burn her chariots in the smoke, and the sword shall devour thy young lions. And I will cut off thy prey from the earth, and the voice of the messengers shall no more be heard. After the Cimmerians, Babylonians, Persians, and Medes destroyed the city, Nineveh was never heard from again. The next prophets, Habakkuk and Zephaniah, both lived in the days of Josiah, king of Judah, the middle of the 7th century, maybe 640 B.C., They both lived in the days of Josiah and were contemporary with Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Both prophets foretold the coming destruction of Jerusalem by the Chaldeans and gave some of the reasons for the punishment of Judah. In many ways, they corroborate things prophesied by Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Like other prophets, Zephaniah included oracles against the surrounding nations, especially in his case the Philistines, and their cities. Obadiah wrote his prophecy against Edom not long after Jeremiah and Ezekiel, and it has not been fulfilled to this day, so we still await it. In verse 11, this is proven, as it speaks of Edom on the side of the Chaldeans at the destruction of Jerusalem in the past tense. So that's how we know that when Obadiah wrote his prophecy. Sometime after the destruction of Jerusalem, and the books of Jeremiah and Ezekiel had come to a close. This, this partaking in, this, in the destruction of the temple by the Edomites is confirmed also in the Psalms and in 1 Esdras that all that of all the Babylonian forces, Edom was most responsible for the total destruction of the temple of Solomon
1: they are always the most ungodly of races, right I mean niggers' chinks, they just want to get by it, but uh, Jews go out of their way to absolutely tear apart Christianity and our uh, godly ways right in our race
0: well well, right, and they make promises to niggers and chinks and, and Mexicans and all the other races in order to help them destroy us. That's why we have this great society of Lyndon Johnson and, and this magnificent welfare state that, that just bleeds money from white Christians and transfers it to non-whites, essentially. In, in, especially in Europe. It, it's much worse than it is in America. It's bad here, but it's especially bad in Europe. In in England and Sweden, where, where niggers are given mansions to live in, while, while the average white Christian can barely afford the rent for his flat, as you call it over there.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. If if um, uh, Sheburn has kids, then, then she has to have enough rooms for each kid. They just ship them from Africa and, you know, oh, you've got five kids. Okay, here's a five-bedroom house.
0: Right. And, and I've seen um, white families with, with six, eight, ten kids living in a three-bedroom house for years. And they were happy with it. They managed. They got by. Daniel was contemporary with Jeremiah and Ezekiel. But he had evidently lived and written for a much longer period of time than they did. He was a young man when his prophecies first began in the days of Nebuchadnezzar. And he was quite old when they end during the rule of the Persians. And and that's a period of about 60 years, at least. Maybe a little longer. Probably about 70. After the time of Daniel... We have the post-captivity prophets, Haggai, Zechariah, and finally Malachi. Haggai and Zechariah wrote as the temple was being rebuilt in the days of Zerubbabel, about 520 BC. And Malachi apparently wrote some decades later. Haggai is portrayed as a counselor to Zerubbabel, speaking to him as a prophet that it is time to rebuild the temple of God. He is depicted as the catalyst which motivates Zerubbabel to accomplish the task. Zechariah is a prophet not only from the time when the rebuilding commenced, who describes some of the trials that those who had returned with Zerubbabel, and namely the high priest Joshua, would have to face. He also prophesied many things which were to happen as a result of that rebuilding. Zechariah was even a prophet of the ministry of Christ. His own travails with Satan, which is the Edomite Jews. And in addition, Zechariah in many respects was a prophet of the Revelation itself. Because his prophecies foreshadow with the same symbols a lot of things which appear in the Revelation. With the same symbols and with similar meanings. Like many of those before him, Zechariah gave oracles against some of the surrounding nations. One such prophecy was against the cities of Philistia, the cities of the Philistines. And in chapter 9, he recorded the word of Yahweh as having said, And a bastard shall dwell in Ashdod, and I will cut off the pride of the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines were white. They were from Mitzrayn. They were related to the ancient Egyptians. And they had also apparently interacted and traded with Europeans for many centuries. So the people who live in the cities of the Philistines are now, today, they're bastards as a result of that punishment. But in Zechariah's time, (coughs) I'm sorry. But in Zechariah's time, they could not have been bastards, at least for the most part. Because otherwise, the, the saying, the oracle, which is a prophecy of God, that a bastard shall dwell in Ashdod, would make no sense whatsoever. It would be meaningless. So the Philistines must have still been pure all the way up to the time of Zechariah, at least for the most part.
1: And that's also a good proof to show that a bastard is mixed race. It's is not unmarried parents are gonna move into the lands of Philistine, right? It means mixed race. It Absolutely. Absolutely. And
0: and in the Sethogen it's the word the Greek word nathos, And Nathus means a bastard, somebody of spurious birth. And it, it's the antonym of Genesios, which is somebody of authentic race. Nathus also, re, re, it's also found in Paul's epistle to the Hebrews, where it describes the descendants of Esau, who had taken wives of the Canaanites. Malachi, the last of the minor prophets we have to discuss briefly because this is only brief and i'm only hitting highlights about race and also about that the interactions with assyria and the captivities things like that malachi is sometime after haggai and zechariah as he prophecies in a time when the temple is fully rebuilt and operational but the priesthood is corrupting itself Malachi corroborates the race mixing among the priests which had happened in the days of Nehemiah and Ezra and prophesied that it would continue to happen that Judah would marry to the daughter of a strange god. He, he's referring back to the patriarch who also took a Canaanite wife and had a couple of Canaanite kids and to Judea itself as a prophecy that the Judeans would marry themselves to a strange god and that strange god is the god of the edomites when they converted the edomites into judaism and accepted them into the citizenry the population of judea as equals they were actually marrying themselves to the daughter of a strange god allegorically malachi was also a prophet of christian Zionism. And the ultimate destruction of Edom, which was also portrayed in Obadiah, but which is not yet fulfilled. As well as being a prophet of Christ and of John the Baptist. The Elijah, which Christ had said was already come. We believe he is also a prophet of what we call Christian identity. The Elijah whom Christ had said would come in the future to restore. And and this is the key point in that assertion to restore the racial covenant message of the scriptures the fact is evident in the purpose of elijah which christ had said was still to come in matthew 17 11, even though john the baptist was already dead where we read and jesus answered and said unto them elias truly shall speaking in the future tense, truly shall first come and restore all things. So it is evident that a prophet in the spirit of Elijah would come twice, once in the form of John the Baptist, and once again in the future time from when Christ explained those things to his apostles. Therefore, if the purpose of the coming of Elijah is to turn the hearts of the children to the fathers, which race of people is it, that came from those fathers, other than that race to which the apostles had brought the gospel of Christ for which John the Baptist had prepared the way. So when you take the scriptures in context, when you read them throughout and and see the narrative that the scriptures weave, there's no doubt that white Europeans, the people that the apostles went to with the gospel of Christ, they are the children of those fathers. They are the descendants of the 12 tribes of Israel.
1: And we pray that this um, Elijah ministry will come soon, right? The, the great awakening when people finally uh, you know, realize who we are. The confusion is lifted from our eyes, uh, all of our people, right?
0: Well, well, right, but I certainly believe that that vehicle is Christian identity because it's the only um, true. It, it's the only expression. Let me put it that way: Christian identity, as we know it at Christiania and and other ministries that that are um that that share a similar message, even though they don't agree with all of our doctrines, that they share the similar overall message, which is the core of that Elijah, which is to come, which is to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, the hearts of children to their fathers. That, that's the racial covenant message of Scripture that is common throughout Christian identity. That must be. We are the only expression of apostolic Christianity which brought the gospel of the reconciliation between Israel and God Founding Christ, who came only for the lost sheep of the house of Israel, that is the expression of that in the modern world. It's the only expression of that in the modern world. All of these other so-called Christian churches are not teaching apostolic Christianity. They're teaching Roman universalism. None of them are teaching apostolic Christianity.
1: Essentially a fake religion, like fake Christianity.
0: Absolutely. It's Roman imperialism, disguised as Christianity. I explain that at length in, in christ in, in my commentary on the Revelation, and probably in other places. It, it's not Christianity. It's not the Christianity of the apostles. Who came for who? According to their own words, they came for the 12 tribes, period. Because Christ came for the lost sheep, Period. It's never the 12 tribes and the Gentiles. It's never the lost sheep and the Gentiles. That word Gentiles means nations, and sometimes it refers to heathen nations, and sometimes it refers to the nations of the children of Israel, which Abraham was promised, and the Israelites themselves were promised to become many nations. They're the Gentiles... Getting the translation right is also a, an important key to understanding scripture, actually reading what the Greek words say and believing them instead of reading what the Greek words say, and discarding the portions or twisting the portions that fit your church doctrine that 's how the Bible is translated today that they read the Greek and and discard or corrupt portions that fit that don't fit their church doctrine. They twist them to fit. Like in, um, in the second epistle to the Thessalonians, and, and this is significant, where Paul of Tarsus said in Greek that the faith is not for all. But the King James Version says but not, that not all men have faith. But that's not what Paul wrote in Greek. They twisted it to fit their doctrine.
1: Yeah, we'll need to do a proof on mistranslations of the Bible, which hopefully should um, have a nice brief list of all of these.
0: That list wouldn't be brief. I'm sorry.
1: <laughs> <laughs> okay, a big list. <laughs> that list wouldn't
0: be brief. There's, there's all sorts of mistranslations in the gospel. Luke chapter 2, Acts chapter 9, verse 15. Um 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 2 or verse 4 is what I was just talking about. But there are many more, especially in the letters of Paul. I don't know if I can make a list. It, it's, it might take me a week. I'm being honest. I can make a list, of course, but it, it's going to take a while. To get the significant ones to to review them all. They're not all in my head, I'm sorry. Some of them are. Some of them stick. But there are many more that... Uh, if I read the, the chapters, uh, that, then they'll hit me where they are, right? But there are a lot. They're all in my commentaries on Paul. But my commentaries on Paul are 121 podcasts. So that's not something that anybody's going to read through in a few hours. Okay. I'm not trying to boast. I'm just stating facts. Um, thank you for being here.
1: Thanks for having me, Bill. Yep, next week we'll do Revelation and uh, praise Yahweh, God of Israel, God of the European race. Thank you. Praise Yahweh and good night.